From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. COVID-19 caused flashbacks for a Denver doctor who lived through the Chernobyl nuclear accident as a child. You're not feeling anything, right? You, you're not in pain, but you know that this force of nature is going to affect your body. And you have no control over preventing it or running away from it. The parallels to the pandemic and how she's found it can help overcome fear, plus the trial and error of trying to treat COVID-19. And how redlining helps explain why certain neighborhoods are prone to the virus. Places can make us more or less sick. Then how the real-life story of an American woman in Peru inspired an author in Colorado. She, in many ways, was like the most hated person in Peru. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. She lived through the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in the former Soviet Union in 1986. And Dr. Hannah Polotsky of Denver says the current COVID-19 crisis has brought back haunting memories of that experience. But it also offers helpful reminders to put terrible moments in history in perspective. Polotsky is a physician at Kaiser Permanente. She wrote down her thoughts in a piece she wrote on LinkedIn. Dr. Polotsky, welcome to the show. Thank you. You grew up in the former Soviet Union. Tell us what Chernobyl was like for you. You were a young girl back then. Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Belarus, a uh, city of Gomel, which was 70 miles from Chernobyl. And I was 12 at the time when the uh, nuclear disaster happened. So it's definitely one of the most profound experiences in my life. How did you find out that it had happened and, and how soon after the actual disaster at Chernobyl? So we did not know what was happening, but people started to say things probably around five days after since behind the Iron Curtain, it was not unusual for people to have shortwave radios. So what they were hearing is that people are detecting radiation in Europe. And then there was a nuclear station disaster, but we were not sure what it means because they did mention Chernobyl, but we did not know, you know, it was right next door. And you don't feel anything or see anything at that distance. You don't feel anything, I mean, unless you're right next to the station, right? So you can see an explosion. So it's just there, but you don't feel anything, you don't know anything, and it's only when you start hearing things then you start getting worried. Right, hearing people talk about it. Yeah, and that day, it's interesting because we were at the wedding, and there were people celebrating outside, but because nobody knew anything, you know, People were exposed, and a few days later, during the May 1st celebration, which is a huge celebration of the, you know, in the Soviet Union, you had demonstrations outside, picnics, and kids were playing, and nobody had a clue. And you actually had to leave home, leave your parents, and were sent away with other kids in your school. Yes. So they had to decrease the exposure of the radiation for the kids, but we were sent out after June 1st, and the reactor disaster happened on April 26th. So there was this delay where the kids were still in town, and it was challenging because you get sent out to all the different parts of the Soviet Union. We happened to go to Dagestan, 
completely different culture. So it was quite an interesting experience just to observe and interact and a bit stressful for a kid who's 12. Right, away from their parents. Right. So our parents actually, I think, were more stressed than the kids because we were with the class. So it was kind of a big adventure for a 12-year-old away in a part of Soviet Union that you have never gone to by yourself. But the parents didn't know what was happening. A lot of rumors of bad things happening to kids who were traveling different parts of Soviet Union. Flash forward to today, and you offer some really fascinating comparisons to COVID-19. You write, quote, how do I explain to my kids there is a force of nature out there that is unpredictable and silent? And you go on to say, it's like walking in a dark alley, not knowing when and if you'll be attacked. Talk about how these crises fit this description of not knowing when you'll be attacked. I mean, I think both crises is kind of display this incredible uncertainty of uh, you have no clue as a human being. You're not feeling anything, right? You, you know, you're not in pain, but you know that this force of nature, there are different forces, but it's a force of nature that's going to affect your body. And you have no control over preventing it or running away from it. And I think that's probably why I got this flashback from uh, my experience as a kid, because I have five kids, you know, and to see them and ask me questions about that and say, hey, mom, but what happens if I get it? And how would you feel that? And uh, you will feel when it happens. But there's no way for you to know when it's going to happen. And it's uh, for a 12-year-old, when you know that your body's affected, it's scary. And it's actually took me a long time to get over that anxiety in a way that, you know, I knew I'm going to get thyroid cancer. And it only took me years in education and becoming a doctor and realize, hey, I think I passed that point. If I didn't get it by now, I'm okay. Did having gone through Chernobyl help you explain the crisis to your kids, COVID to your kids? Oh, for sure. I'm definitely so much more resilient and able to articulate to the kids, hey, I thought that I'm going to die from cancer. And guess what? The years showed that, you know, you will be okay. I'm not afraid anymore. And I was able to say to kids, hey, it's a very rough time because of you not knowing what's happening. But let's compare this to my growing up and my experience. And I actually made them read my essay so we understand how I felt as a kid. But at the end of the day, you know, all the bad things end. Even the COVID will go away. You know, we'll get the vaccine and we're going to be better. As a doctor, what's been your experience working with COVID patients? For me specifically, I can see, and again, comparing that to my experience uh, with a Chernobyl, that's what drove me to be a doctor. So to me, is like, how can you provide extra care, you know, and to be human at that moment when it's not always about medicine, but it's a lot of time is how do you hold someone's hand to get through this very new, very stressful experience. And I think that to me is kind of the best thing about being a doctor. You alluded to this earlier with talk about resilience. Based on what you've lived through in history, do you look at the future with this sense that you can really face anything and be okay? I had a few more disasters thrown my way, you know, over the years. And um, with my father getting a stroke just as we came to this country, so I took care of him for 20 years in and out of the hospitals. 
And I think that's also added to my resilience and it's also made me to be a better doctor. And yes, I know other people had a lot of bad things happen to them. And I think that it's important to pick up, you know, and even have the learning lessons from things that are negative and realize that you will never improve as a human being if everything that happens to you is just, you know, nice and easy things. Dr. Polotsky, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Andrea. Dr. Hannah Polotsky is a physician at Kaiser Permanente and lives in Denver. When we come back, are some neighborhoods contributing to the spread of COVID-19, where redlining comes into the conversation? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR is here for Colorado. The stories, music, and statewide coverage you tune in for wouldn't be possible without your financial support. Because you value what you get from CPR, make an impact with your first donation or make an additional gift. When you do that right now, your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by an anonymous donor who values Colorado Public Radio's vital role in our community. Give now and double your gift at CPR.org. Can a neighborhood make someone sick? That's what an urban planning expert at the University of Colorado Denver believes. He traces the problem back to redlining as the novel coronavirus continues to hit blacks and Latinos at disproportionately high rates. Jeremy Namath co-authored a piece in theconversation.com, a publication for academics around the country. Jeremy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been clearly documented that communities of color have had higher infection rates and higher rates of hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19. And the explanations include a combination of factors like access to health care, jobs that don't allow for social distancing, crowded living situations. And you also believe that redlining resulted in neighborhoods that are unhealthy. First, tell us about redlining in cities across the country like Denver. Yeah, so redlining is this historically racist practice where in the 1930s, the federal government said, we want to stimulate homeownership in cities around the country. And so we'll do this by backing mortgages, by basically supporting lenders who said, we want to you know, create more opportunities for homeownership. And so the federal government said, okay, great, we'll do this, but we need to understand that our investments are safe. And the way we're going to make sure that our investments are safe are by only backing those mortgages in safe areas, right, in areas where we believe that we'll get our investment back. So they did that by scoring neighborhoods, basically A, B, C, or D, D being hazardous neighborhoods where they literally drew a red line around these neighborhoods. And uh, they would really only invest in the A or B neighborhoods, what they called the best And they chose these distinctions. They made these distinctions, A, B, C, or D, based on the color of the skin of the people who were living there. So there's lots of documentation that in Denver and cities around the country, the neighborhoods that got the D rating were neighborhoods that had mostly black populations. And so what that did was basically target investment toward whiter neighborhoods, higher income neighborhoods, and limited and actually barred investment in neighborhoods of color. And so that's had major, major impacts for the next 60, 70 years. Although the practice isn't happening now, what we found is that these practices sort of reverberate through generations and have contributed to major wealth gaps, major health gaps. And and that's really what this study was about. 
And you point to the Valverde section of Denver as an example of a place where redlining led to unhealthy environmental factors that exist today. What are some examples? Yeah. So in Valverde and, and other neighborhoods, you know, we see things like uh, freeways running either directly through neighborhoods or just adjacent to neighborhoods. And so freeways in the 1960s were built in Denver, I-25 and I-70 in some of our poorest neighborhoods through many of these red line neighborhoods that we mentioned, uh, including Valverde, because those were the lowest income neighborhoods, because land was cheap, because resistance from neighborhoods was really at its lowest uh, versus a neighborhood like Washington Park or some of the upper income neighborhoods. And we know from study after study that asthma rates are much higher, for example, when you live near a freeway or they're you know, notoriously sort of elevated in these areas. And that's a comorbid condition that basically increases the impact of COVID-19 on people. So having a freeway near you, that's one of the things. Also just walkability, biking infrastructure, parks, healthy food outlets, a lot of these red line neighborhoods were starved of investment for so long that they just don't have all those amenities that some of the upper income neighborhoods have. And so those factors are really linked to levels of diabetes, right? levels of hypertension, levels of obesity, all of which are factors that put people at higher risk of COVID-19 contraction and hospitalization and death. So you're saying, for example, a section like Valverde that has this legacy of redlining, they may not have the same number of parks or recreational opportunities as certain other areas. That's exactly right. And in fact, there's study after study that show that these neighborhoods were actively starved of investment, right? And if we had money for a new park we probably weren't going to put it in the lowest income neighborhood of the city. Instead, we would target that toward uh, some of the places where maybe the residents were more vocal, where there was maybe more political connections. And I think to the city's credit and to cities around the country, we are really recognizing the importance of equity, the importance of actually targeting investment to the places that need it most. And that's one of our real strong kind of policy findings here is that we know that there are disadvantaged neighborhoods around the country, and that's where we need to really strengthen our investments and really put, put our money where our mouth is. What's the overall message that, you know, you gleaned from looking into this? I think there's really a couple messages. The first is that there is this real sort of, I would call it a durability, you know, a long-lasting impact of historically racist policies, right? So even if we're not explicitly racist in the way that we zone neighborhoods or segregate folks like we did in the 1930s, these continue to play out. And it's sort of more insidious and a little more hidden, which I think is in many ways more dangerous. And uh, if we are going to right some of these wrongs, we really need to take a, an equity-based approach. Equity meaning helping people who need it the most instead of an equality-based approach, which is just everyone gets the same amount. I think that's a really important sort of overall message. The second is that environmental factors matter, right? It's not just about the individual behaviors or circumstances of residents, that actually places can make us more or less sick. So we look at zip codes and we know that in some neighborhoods in Denver, you're likely to live about 15 to 20 years longer than in other neighborhoods just by the nature of your zip code alone. So place matters, right? So we really need to bring together planning, policy, public health, and understand how where we live actually shapes our 
life circumstances. And then the third is really, you know, just understanding how we can really take health care into the neighborhoods that need it the most instead of a sort of centralized hospital-based approach. Returning to an era of sort of family health clinics uh, is really important. And, you know, Denver has actually a history of doing that. And I think we can do even better with that. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jeremy Namath is an associate professor at the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Colorado, Denver. A doctor at UC Health is hoping to start a clinical trial in an effort to treat COVID-19. Dr. Josh Dewin is an internist and an anesthesiologist. He's been using a common steroid, normally used as an anti-nausea treatment, to treat critically ill patients with COVID-19 since mid-March. It's called dexamethasone. I think this is a new tool that gives us hope. It's one more thing we can use for the sickest patients with COVID-19. Dr. Dewin says he's seen mixed results with the steroid, and the best response has been from younger patients who have more robust immune systems. Early in the pandemic, we had a 34-year-old gentleman, so you know, a young person who received steroids and improved quickly. Um, that was not the only therapy that patient received. They got some other things that may have helped, but there was a temporal relationship when I was taking care of him between steroids and clinical improvement. I mean, we've seen a handful of patients like that. I've also taken care of patients who receive steroids and we don't notice any change. Dr. Dewin says until critical trials are done, it's hard to say just what kind of benefit it may provide. We're at the early stages. Because we haven't received funding, we've been unable to enroll patients yet. So it's designed, it's ready to go. It just needs money. Dexamethasone was recently touted by doctors in Great Britain who found it was 30% successful with coronavirus patients who were on ventilators. But Dr. Dewin is cautious. The critique is that releasing a press release without the data to back it up can cause people to overreact before we know definitively that this is an effective treatment. Dr. Dewin says another possible advantage of the steroid treatment is that it's relatively inexpensive, less than $50 for the total regimen. He says as soon as they get funding, they'll begin enrolling patients in a clinical trial. Another promising treatment uses convalescent plasma. But while some COVID-19 patients have made remarkable recoveries, others have died. In Colorado, hospitals, researchers, and blood donation organizations are trying to scale up the treatment and test its effectiveness. Here's CPR's Claire Cleveland. Chris Chiarello is the Director of Pediatric Anesthesiology and Staff Anesthesiologist at Denver Health. On April 20th, he tested positive for COVID-19. I thought this was, I'm going to be sick for a week and then go back to work. So the first week was at home, fevers, bad night sweats, changing clothes three or four times a, a night, some headaches and some muscle aches, but again, nothing that I couldn't handle at home. He suspects he caught the virus at work. He stayed separated from his wife and children and managed his symptoms until he started to get worse. A week after his positive test result, he and his wife decided he needed to go to the hospital. Started coughing up pink fluid, dropped my oxygen, my heart rate wouldn't come down from about 120, 130, and I just couldn't get the fever to break. He knew from his charts that he was at risk of clotting, so he paced the small hospital room despite the shortness of breath and watched the news. But no one really had a plan for a 43-year-old that didn't need to be on a ventilator 
whose labs just continued to get worse. With no proven treatments for COVID-19, his doctors could only do so much. But there was another option, convalescent plasma. It's the liquidy, antibody-rich part of blood. For COVID patients, a donor who's recovered from the virus has antibodies that may help someone who's currently sick. Chirello requested it. In early April, before his diagnosis, Colorado hospitals, universities, and blood donation centers had joined together to create the Colorado COVID-19 Convalescent Plasma Consortium. To meet the demand for plasma and to study its effectiveness, collaboration was essential. Around the same time, the Food and Drug Administration released guidance allowing doctors to treat severely ill patients with plasma. Vitalant is one of the nation's oldest and largest nonprofit blood service providers. They quickly scaled up their capacity to collect plasma from patients who had tested positive for COVID-19. Larry Dumont, director at the Vitalant Research Institute in Denver, says there's still more we need to learn. So number one, it, it does appear safe. Number two, there are remarkable anecdotal reports of the likely effect of this plasma on patients. And of course, there's other anecdotes where it appears there was no effect. So that's why I'm optimistic, but we've really got to have well-designed clinical trials. Dr. Rebecca Boxer, Director for Clinical Trials at the Kaiser Permanente Institute for Health Research, agrees. She has a lot of questions about the treatment. Well, what kind of unit did they receive? What were the antibody levels? Were there neutralizing antibodies against the virus in those units? You know, all sorts of questions come up about what makes a good unit or a not good unit and how well do we match it to a patient. UC Health University of Colorado Hospital is another consortium member. Dr. David Beckham is leading a clinical trial that's enrolled 82 patients. He hopes to help answer those questions, but he cautions that plasma isn't a silver bullet. We'll go through the process of studying this, but my hope is that, you know, we'll get some information and data from this and it'll help lead to more targeted therapeutic approaches and preventative approaches in the future. Until effective drugs or vaccines are developed and tested, the need for plasma will continue. Dumont is already thinking ahead to a potential second wave. On my worry list, as I, you know, shift from, from one list to another, is really what's going on in the fall and the winter. Because if things get really rough, uh, even though we're collecting a lot of plasma, are we going to have enough to be able to support people? Because I, I don't want to see us back in a February, March situation. It would be a shame. Twelve hours after Chirello's request for the treatment, he was sitting in a chair watching more TV as the donor plasma was pumped into his arm. Within about two hours, I noticed that I wasn't warm anymore. My heart wasn't beating out of my chest. Within two hours, I had an appetite. I got up, went to the bathroom. I stopped coughing up pink frothy stuff. The next day, he went home. The most amazing thing was I physically walked to the elevator, walked downstairs, walked out the front door of a hospital, and sat there on a bench and waited for my wife. Doctors and researchers expect to have preliminary results from clinical trials in the coming weeks. In the meantime, the consortium's members will keep working to collect, evaluate, and disperse convalescent plasma and hope to have enough donors and stored plasma for a potential second wave later this year. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News.
25 years ago in Lima, Peru, an American woman named Lori Berenson was sentenced to 20 years in prison for collaborating with a terrorist organization. The case enraged many Peruvians who saw her as meddling in the country's unrest at the time. In the United States, Berenson became a cause celebre for U.S. officials who fought for years for her release. Andrew Altschul teaches creative writing at Colorado State University. He wrote a novel called The Gringa, based on Berenson's story. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. Before I read your novel, I remember generalities about Laurie Berenson's story uh, from the 1990s and beyond, but not a lot of specifics. Tell us about what Berenson was doing in Peru when all this happened. According to her, she'd been there as a journalist. She was writing articles about government and the post-war period for a couple of U.S.-based magazines. This is a story that the Peruvian government rejected outright, and they claimed that she had always come as a kind of soldier of fortune who was bent on restarting the war, on fomenting revolution from the moment that she got there. And in your book, the character based loosely on Berenson is named Leonora or Leo Gelb. Can you explain how you told the story? Sure. The novel is told by uh, another American character about 10 years later on the occasion of Leonora Gelb's parole. She had been sentenced to life in prison as a terrorist, but she'd been paroled. And there's an American expat. He's a kind of a failed novelist, a layabout who has um, left the U.S. in the wake of the Iraq invasion and the detainee abuses at Abu Ghraib. He's just kind of left the country in disgust and wants to live this sort of hedonistic, apolitical life, but through a series of unexpected events, gets drawn into this story and commits himself to writing a profile of Leonora Gelb, which he very quickly figures out he's absolutely unqualified to write. And I'd like you to read from the book, since it offers some understanding of what was happening in Peru in the 80s and 90s. So could you read the first paragraph at the beginning of Chapter 2? Sure. This is Andres kind of coming to terms with this story that he is agreeing to write. And Andres is the narrator. Yes. Here's what I knew about the war. I knew there'd been one, a dirty one, though like most Americans, I didn't yet know what that meant. I'd heard of The Shining Path, maybe in some long-ago history class or cable documentary, but I couldn't have told you the first thing about their beliefs or their tactics. I couldn't have said when the war began or when it ended or how close it came to bringing down the Peruvian state. When friends referred to Sendero Luminoso, I nodded gravely, mirroring their grief, but I didn't ask questions. I didn't want to know details, body counts, who butchered whom. I didn't want to hear the arguments, though I knew they still festered. The fury and righteousness, the fear of one's neighbor were too familiar, reminders of a life I'd tried to leave behind. Can you talk about what that time was like in Peru, just briefly? Well, this is the the mid-90s, but essentially, um, you know, if a country can be said to have post-traumatic stress disorder, that would apply quite well to Peru in the 90s. From 1980 to 1992, there had been an internal conflict between the government and a variety of armed leftist revolutionary groups, but the most prominent one was the Shining Path, or Sendero Luminoso. And by the end of these 12 years, there were 70,000 Peruvians who'd been killed, split about equally between deaths um, that were the responsibility of the revolutionaries and deaths that were at the hands of the government and the military. And so 
This affected Peruvians from all walks of life, all socioeconomic strata, all ethnicities, all areas of the country. And by the time it was over, this was a country that had grown used to lockdown, that didn't want their children to go out unaccompanied. This was a country that had seen kidnappings and assassinations in broad daylight, that had seen military checkpoints at busy intersections in affluent neighborhoods of Lima. And by the time it was all over, they were really in shock. And I think it's also fair to say they were completely exhausted by both revolution and counter-revolutionary measures. And most of the country, I think it's fair to say, really hoped that there would be peace, whatever that meant. And so the arrival of Lurie Berenson and the renewal or the potential renewal of hostilities by revolutionary groups really came as a shock to a country that really wanted nothing more of this, that had really seen quite enough. Now, you've been clear that this book is not meant to be about Berenson. She's just the inspiration for the story. But what jumped out at you that made you want to write a novel? Well, there were a lot of uh, reasons that I gravitated towards this novel. I lived in Peru in the late 1990s for a couple of years, and I was aware of this story as it was happening. I didn't think to write a novel about it until about 10 years later when Lori Berenson herself was paroled. And the outpouring of fury and rage towards her, even 15 years after she'd been arrested and disappeared, was really kind of shocking to me. I mean, she, in many ways, was like the most hated person in Peru, and not just by conservatives or supporters of the government, by people on the left as well, who felt that she had betrayed their cause in some way or drawn a kind of unwelcome attention to them. And so a privileged American who shows up in a foreign country and gets involved in a political situation that's just much bigger than she has any capability of understanding. It was interesting to me as an expatriate at the time, but it was also interesting in a larger sense in the ways that it fits into a, you know, an entire century's context of American misadventures in Latin America and the way that America and Americans have so often sort of showed up in places that they don't understand particularly well. And begun trying to assert their will and impose their values and reorganize economies or governments based on their priorities. How does Leo, your character, end up entangled in a terrorist organization? Well, like I assume most people who are accused of terrorism, the intention is never to become a terrorist. Nobody wakes up or is born wanting to kill people or kidnap people or blow up banks. So Leonora, like many activists, I think, grows progressively disenchanted with the possibilities for peaceful protest. She starts out working for an NGO in the slums of Lima, and she witnesses unprovoked governmental violence against the citizens. Um, and she wants to understand how she can do something that would be more effective than carrying a picket sign or teaching ESL classes or marching on a Capitol building only to get tear gassed or shot with rubber bullets. And so she eventually allies herself with a group of people for whom the war never really ended, for whom the goals of the war are still very much alive and still very much unfulfilled. And the question is always, if the things that we've been doing to try to enact change don't work, if in fact they are met with unprovoked 
government violence and were going to be killed for doing them or detained indefinitely and tortured for doing them, then maybe we need to try some stronger medicine. Maybe we need to change our tactics to something that might have a more dramatic effect. Leo has some money, a trust fund from her parents, and she helps uh, set up some of the terrorists in a house. And you portray her as someone who so wanted to be involved and push for justice that she's taken advantage of, almost marginalized by this group. What prompted you to depict her that way? Well, one of the things that was really fascinating to me about the Lori Berenson story was the incongruousness of the different accounts. On the one hand, Berenson, who was renting a house in an affluent suburb of Lima called La Molina, quite a large house in which 12 or 13 uh, leftist militants were living at the time of her arrest, has always said she had no idea who was living in the house. She's certain that they weren't terrorists, but she didn't know anything about them. She just needed roommates, people to help pay the rent, etc. And on the other hand, you had the government who claimed from the very beginning that she was an intentional terrorist mastermind, that she had every understanding of what was happening, and that in fact she had a leadership role in the group. To me, both of those stories always seemed completely preposterous. It was obvious to me that somewhere in the middle was a much more complicated and nuanced truth. Where I settled, which may or may not have any resemblance to what really happened, is a kind of series of misunderstandings, both deliberate and accidental, to the extent that everybody in the House has a slightly different understanding of what they are planning. And Leonora, as clearly the most naive person in the House, she's American, she has less than a year's experience in Peru, knows a little about the history, but not a lot. She is bankrolling at least their residence, and so they need her, but she ends up kind of caught in the middle and not fully aware of the things that are going on around her. So I try to portray her as not quite the innocent dupe that the real person tried to portray herself at in her trials, but also something far short of this terrorist mastermind that the government wanted to portray. What were the challenges of trying to turn real life and history into fiction? Well, there were certainly artistic challenges, but the more um, difficult challenges were ethical, at least the way that I approached the book. I mean, these were events that involved real people, that involved a real country against the backdrop of a national trauma that killed 70,000 people. You know, I am undoubtedly, just as Leonora Gelb is, just as Laurie Berenson was, an outsider to this culture and to this history. There's no way that I could understand it the way that a Peruvian can. And the additional challenge is we're talking about wartime. We're talking about a period where there is no official story, that everyone who lived through it had a different experience of it. To this day, no two Peruvians will tell the story of the war years exactly the same. And that was something I had to come to terms with when I was interviewing, you know, literally dozens of people from all walks of life. I tried to build that uncertainty into the novel itself and really give voice to as many Peruvian experiences as I could. And Leo ends up standing trial. It's quite gripping. It's actually tough to call it a trial. Describe it for us. Um, well, she is, uh, and this is fairly close to to the historical fact. She was tried in a in a military court at the time. 
the procedures of military courts in Peru were, had been held over from the war years, and uh, judges were anonymous. They wore hoods because there had been assassinations of judges who had convicted members of the Shining Path. Uh, but more importantly, the real trial took place in the court of public opinion. Um, shortly after her capture, she was put on television. This was another um, policy from the war years. The terrorism suspects were were put through a, a presentation to the press. And where anyone might have, have expected this young American woman who had just been arrested as a terrorist to claim that she had no idea what was happening, that she got caught up in something that she understood didn't understand, to apologize to the country, to say, you know, I just want to go home. It's all been a misunderstanding. On the contrary, what Lori Berenson did was she launched into a, a very angry tirade. You can still see the footage or the photographs on the internet. She was red in the face. Her fists were bald. She was leaning towards the, the reporters very, very aggressively. And the whole country saw this press presentation, and it really fit perfectly with the government's narrative of her as this kind of savage foreign terrorist just bent on the destruction of the country. And at that point, I think it became impossible to even conceive of anything other than a full conviction. It strikes me that the U.S. government has been deeply involved in South America, Central America, and yet maybe I should speak for myself, but I feel like America's knowledge of South America is very limited. What do you make of that? I think that's absolutely true. I think it's probably true that um, a large percentage of Americans couldn't find Peru on a map, couldn't name a single uh, president in the history of Peru, whereas when I lived in Peru, you had school children who could recite the names of every single U.S. president in history. I mean, people from other countries know a whole lot more about the United States and its politics and its policies than people in the United States know about foreign countries, particularly countries in the developing world. And so I think that is in great portion responsible for this exactly the history of interventions that you're talking about, whether it's the Bay of Pigs, the invasion of Iraq, or, you know, just a few weeks ago, there was a group of American mercenaries based out of Florida who were arrested in Venezuela, trying to join up with um, an opposition movement to, to stage a coup against President Nicolas Maduro. So there's a whole history of this. And uh, I'm sorry to say that usually when Americans get themselves into positions like this, you get the full force of the U.S. government kind of pounding the table at the U.N. or wherever and demanding that these Americans who have been so wrongly treated um, be released and sent home. In the case of Lori Berenson, it worked out quite differently. I'm not going to reveal how the novel ends. It truly surprised me. But what happened to Berenson? She was originally sentenced to life in prison um, after there was a change of administration in Peru in 2000. That sentence by the military court was vacated, and she was given a new trial, a civilian trial, where she was convicted again on somewhat different charges and sentenced to 20 years, including time served. She was paroled after 15 years. Um, that was in 2010. But the conditions of the parole were that she needed to remain in Peru until the sentence expired in 2015, uh, which she did. Uh, and she returned to the United States with her son, who had been born while she was in prison. And from there, the trail kind of goes cold. I'm not really sure what's become of her. Um, I certainly wouldn't blame her for wanting to stay out of the news for the rest of her life. 
And you haven't tried to contact her or ever get in touch. I thought about it early on in the writing of the novel, but it was very obvious to me from the very beginning that, first of all, I didn't want to write a nonfiction book. I didn't want to write the true story of what happened to Lori Berenson because the things I wanted to explore thematically and psychologically were only loosely related to that story, if at all. And so um, while it would have been really interesting to sit down with her and hear her version of what happened, it also seemed to me that it would be a real ethical problem to talk to her and hear her tell me the story and then to go write something different. So I, I needed to continue making it clear by the way the novel itself develops that it doesn't aspire to be a true story. It's not trying to say what really happened to Lori Berenson. It's trying to explore things in a different direction. Andrew, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the show, Andrea. Andrew Altschul wrote the novel The Gringa. It's based on the true story of an American woman who lived in Peru and was found guilty in 1996 for collaborating with terrorists. Altschul is an assistant professor at Colorado State University. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Listen to CPR News and get the word on what's happening all around the state. And visit denverite.com to get even more news from the Mile High City. Hi, I'm Anna Campbell, editor of Denverite, and you'll find our small but mighty reporting team all over town, bringing you the useful and delightful news you need to live, work, and play in Denver. Get the daily Denverite newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every morning. Sign up at denverite.com. It seems like nearly every corner of life has changed in recent months. For this next story, we turn to the natural world and something that hasn't changed for years. Coal seams can ignite, burning leftover coal deep underground. CPR's Grace Hood traveled to Glenwood Springs to check out an unusual reminder of Colorado's mining past. South Canyon, west of Glenwood Springs, is a place you'd go to check out new mountain biking trails or hike. But I'm here to look at something below ground. On this late winter day, I walk up a snowy trail with Tara Taffy. We traveled to this spot in February. She keeps an eye on coal mine fires for the state. There's the east side. I, I see that steam coming up. Yep, that's actually smoke up there in the top. You can see the extensiveness of how warm the ground is there. So how can you tell an underground coal mine fire? In winter, it's easy. There's telltale smoke rising from the hillside. Taffy says surface temperatures can be 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And this is not your friendly campfire. Underground fires belch toxic fumes. They're stinky. So it off-gasses vents, carbon monoxide, there's also hydrogen sulfide gas, um, some CO2. It really smells bad, and uh, it'll give you a pretty bad headache. Earth laced with rich minerals like coal, silver, and gold are what attracted settlers to Colorado in the 1800s. They abandoned more than 1,700 coal mines alone, and they didn't leave money to clean up the mess. Most underground fires burn in remote, undetected spots for years, even decades. Sometimes they spark wildfires. That's what happened here in 2002. A wildfire burned 29 homes. Based on, you know, our location to a population center and heavy infrastructure, the landfills right next door, 
it's really important to us to try and control this in a way that you know protects the public and protects the, the environment. Overall, Colorado is keeping tabs on 38 underground fires. It's a similar picture across other western states like New Mexico and in Pennsylvania. John Stefanko works in the state's active and abandoned mine operations. He says one underground fire was so challenging to put out in the 1980s that the state opted to relocate an entire town called Centralia. The only thing left up there, I believe, would be the cemetery, and I think the church is still there. Eerie pictures of Centralia show abandoned, spray-painted streets leading to nowhere. Lately, Stefanko's focused his sights on federal funding for coal mine reclamation. It's set to expire next year. The Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act is a lifeline for states like Colorado and Pennsylvania that have seen coal production decline and yet still need funds to keep thousands of old mines from harming the public. It's the sole source of funding for us to address our inventory of sites but also allows us to address the the emergencies that occur on an annual basis. Pennsylvania, along with Wyoming, created the site Our Work's Not Done to raise awareness about congressional reauthorization of funds next year. Problems, particularly emergencies, could grow worse as the climate warms. Pennsylvania saw a high number of unexpected projects due to a lot of freezing and thawing this spring. In Colorado, Taffy says wildfires will only grow more extreme as temperatures warm across the state. Does that work become more important? I think it does. We have roughly 38 coal mine fires within the state of Colorado, but there's only a handful of those that really pose a threat to a population center or, you know, a large coal mine. And so those are the fires that we're really focusing on at this time. Next week, workers will use soil to smother the underground fire on the mountainside. They'll use dirt like you'd use a blanket to try and put out the fire. Unfortunately, there's no real cost-effective way that we can put this fire out, short of literally mining the mountain out to, to pull out all the burning coal. So we really focus here at this site on potentially trying to contain the fire, so getting around it. The state says it'll push hard to use what federal funds it has to shore up the most threatening underground fires this summer. Due to an uncertain federal funding picture and a Congress focused on the coronavirus, it could all add up to a long time until federal funds show up again to help shore up abandoned coal mines. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. From spring to summer, it's time to answer your gardening and yard questions as things heat up in the months ahead. Are you worried about weather extremes like intense sunshine or hail? Maybe you're frustrated by rabbits eating your flowers down to a nub. What's on your mind now that summer's officially here? We'll get answers from Master Gardener Lonnie Godet of Berthet with CSU Extension. She'll join us on Thursday. Leave us a voicemail with your questions. Dial our main number, then extension 480. So 303-871-9191, extension 480. One more time, 303-871-9191, extension 480. 
Finally today, Three Kings Tavern recently announced it's closing permanently, citing the financial strain of the COVID-19 pandemic. The music venue in Denver frequently hosted bands during the Underground Music Showcase, which is sponsored in part by our colleagues at Indy 1023. In honor of Three Kings, let's hear a few songs we recorded there during the 2018 showcase. That's Ghost Tapes playing Invisible at Three Kings Tavern. And we'll end with Leon and the Revival. Leon and the Revival with Star performed in 2018 at Three Kings Tavern. The music venue is closing after 14 years. Thanks for joining us today. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. For Ryan Warner, I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News. Baby, you're gonna be-